Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. They are hard to avoid. I am talking here about emotionally immature people. Most of us, if not all of us, have to deal with them. These interactions can range from mildly annoying to genuinely traumatic, especially if the emotionally immature people in question are our own parents, which is true for an awful lot of us. My guest today has written a sleeper hit book on this subject with more than 10,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lindsay C. Gibson is a clinical psychologist and the author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, among other books. And just to be super clear from the outset here, she has advice in this interview for dealing with emotionally immature people, whether they're your parents or not. Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse or childhood friend, whatever. In this conversation, we talk about the signs of emotional immaturity, whether or not I am emotionally immature, I couldn't help but ask her because once she described the signs or the symptoms, I started to see myself in some of them. We talk about what happens to children who are raised by emotionally immature parents, including the signature coping strategies of many of these uh, children, why adult children of EIPs or emotionally immature people turn to healing fantasies and how to let go of those healing fantasies, what you're probably doing with your emotionally immature parents now that you're an adult and what you should be doing instead, what role compassion should and should not, that's crucial here, should and should not play in your relationships with EIPs, and how to heal. Okay, we'll get started with Lindsay C. Gibson right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. 
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Dr. Lindsay C. Gibson, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Dan. It's great to have you. So, uh, let's start with a story. I believe you have a little story to tell about how you got interested in adult children of emotionally immature parents. I started out my training in a program that fortunately emphasized psychological development as well as clinical psychology. And it was a very helpful thing because I was trained to do a lot of psychological testing. So when you're doing psychological testing, you're writing a report for a therapist who's working with a client. And it's enormously helpful to them to have the report writer sort of peg the client for where they are in terms of their developmental spot. So I might write a psychological report for somebody and I would say, you know, they're a 45-year-old man, but, you know, actually they're functioning as a 12-year-old emotionally or as a three-year-old. And that would give the therapist a very quick glimpse into what to expect from this person in the emotional realm when they were doing psychotherapy. And later on, when I had uh, my own practice, I began to notice that a lot of the people that were coming in with problems were describing people in their lives that I, <laughs> as a psychologist, would say to myself, oh my gosh, you know, he sounds like a three-year-old or sounds like a five-year-old. And I became aware that a lot of the problems that people were having with the other people in their lives were coming from these developmental arrests in the people around them. So they were trying their best to get along with them, but this immaturity kept rearing its head and making it difficult for them to have a good relationship. So I thought that this was such an interesting way of looking at it that I was sharing it with my clients and explaining about emotional development, emotional immaturity, how it worked. And it really was very, very helpful to them because they felt like this was something they could relate to. This was an idea they understood. And it really reflected to them something that they had already sensed, which was <laughs> that these emotionally immature people were acting like little kids and they often had to stabilize them and tiptoe around them in ways that they would with, you know, a cranky child. So it became 
evident that this was very, very helpful as a concept to my clients. And then, of course, I just kept expanding that and reading more and researching it and understanding it better. So that's how it all started. So how do you define emotional immaturity? First of all, think of it as we have different strands of development in our personality. For instance, you might have an intellectual strand. You might have a, you know, well, you certainly have a you know, physical development strand. You might have social skills. You might have educational strand. But all of these different strands in the personality really, in some ways, operate kind of independently. So you can have a person who, in their emotional immaturity, that they are quite young in the coping mechanisms that they use, in their tolerance for frustration, in their emotional regulation, they can be really quite young. But in their intellectual development, they might be very intelligent. They might be highly educated. They might be highly skilled. They might, you know, have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and are are a business success. And so, Emotional immaturity can co-occur with these different strands of development in such a way that it feels very contradictory sometimes to claim that someone is behaving in an emotionally immature manner because the rest of their life, in our culture anyway, looks very actualized, very competent, very adult, very grown up. So it's often a surprise to people when you raise that concept with them because they say, well, you know, how can they be emotionally immature? You know, he owns his own business. He's well thought of in the community. You know, he's been very, very successful financially. How can this person be emotionally immature? But it's certainly possible. So the first thing is to realize that being emotionally immature doesn't mean that you're not smart or that you're not capable. It just means that in the emotional realm, you may not have fully grown up yet. So what are the key signs and symptoms of people who are emotionally immature? I'm glad you used that word symptoms, Dan, because with emotional immaturity, it's not a diagnostic category. You won't find this in the DSM-5. It is how I describe a syndrome, but it's not made up of necessarily clinical symptoms, which is one of the reasons why I like it, (laughs) because sometimes people don't like to think of their parents in terms of uh, clinical diagnoses. So I found that using the term emotional immaturity was much more palatable to people than diagnosing in absentia their parent as borderline or narcissistic or whatever it might be. So we wouldn't necessarily call the behaviors symptoms because they wouldn't be diagnosable, but they certainly have some cardinal signs uh, that we would look out for. So think of it in terms of there's a continuum. People may be you know, extremely emotionally immature to the point where it affects all those other strands of development that I mentioned, and they may not be functioning very well. And then you can have someone who has a little bit of emotional immaturity, 
usually based on patterns that they've learned in their past, like family patterns or sort of inherited traumas from parents, that kind of thing. So they have some of the symptoms, but it's not so wholesale as the person who is definitely emotionally immature. But there are about five characteristics that I think are what I would call kind of a tipping point kind of sign. In other words, if you have one or two of these, you probably are falling into the category of emotional immaturity. But there are four main characteristics, and then there's a fifth. The first one is egocentrism. Just for a quick shorthand, think of a three-year-old. So a three-year-old is like the most egocentric little creature on the planet, They have to be center stage. They want it to be all about them. Everything that happens is a reference to themselves. And then the second one is that they have poor empathy. That is, it's very hard for them to put themselves in the shoes of another person. Another way of thinking about that is that they just don't have emotional imagination about the interior world of other people. So they don't mentalize, they don't conceptualize the subjective experiences of other people. And so you can imagine that frees them up to say and do all kinds of things that might be very hurtful or might be embarrassing to other people because it just doesn't occur to them to wonder about how that would feel to that person. The third one is they have very poor self-reflection. They're self-referential, meaning everything's about them. But when it comes to self-reflection, like, gee, I, you know, I wonder if I had something to do with that. I wonder if I was to blame for part of that. What can I do next time that would make that better? What do I need to watch out for? That's self-reflection. And they don't do that. It's not a capability that they have at an emotional level. They can't stand outside themselves and regard themselves as kind of an object of their own attention. And then the last of the big four is fear of emotional intimacy. Now, emotionally immature people are disorganized by strong emotion. So when somebody is showing strong emotion, whether it's being upset or expressing love or being moved or, you know, these kind of very intense feelings between people, they get really scared and they pull back. One therapist called it affect phobia, meaning that they just became scared and unable to function when the emotional intimacy got to a certain level in the relationship. And you can imagine what that does to a child whose well-being and emotional development really depends on being able to make a strong, intimate connection with their parent, to be able to feel like that parent knows them and gets them and is right there with them, is connecting with them at an emotional level. And that's what a lot of emotionally immature people have a lot of trouble doing. It really makes them nervous. And when you try to relate to them at this deeper level, they become very uncomfortable, turn the subject back to them, move it to a superficial topic, have a free association, anything to get away from the intensity. Now, the fifth quality is 
not as central as the first four, but I'll mention it here. And if you want, we can talk about some other characteristics as well. But it's affective realism. This is a term that I got from Lisa Barrett's work on emotions. And what affective realism is, is the way of approaching life so that reality is what I feel it is. Reality is not objectively assessed. Reality is assessed on the basis of how it feels to me. So if I feel like someone doesn't like me, I know they don't like me. (laughs) If I feel like I'm not doing a very good job, then I'm a terrible person. I'm not, I'm incapable. I'm incompetent. I mean, their feelings lead the way, not their rational objectivity. So those are the characteristics that if you have those, it's very likely that you will fall into the category, as I describe it, of emotional immaturity. I mean, I listen to that and I think... Am I emotionally immature? I mean, I certainly, I I can recognize myself in some points in my life in most, if not all of those. Yeah, absolutely. And in all our lives, in every single person's life, we will recognize these characteristics because we've all been through them. And we all carry our past experiences like those little Russian nesting dolls, right? So we have our inner three-year-old, we have our inner 12-year-old, we have our inner 15-year-old. We know what it's like to be egocentric. We know what it's like to not think twice about how we're affecting somebody else, right? We know the trouble we've gotten into when we haven't self-reflected and someone has gotten very upset with us because, you know, we're sure that our viewpoint is the right one. And we have all been through affective realism (laughs) where, you know, we're convinced that, you know, something is something because of the way we feel. So these are human qualities, Dan. They're not something that we would be unfamiliar with if we were emotionally mature. It's just that when you reach an adequate level of maturity, you can do something with these qualities because you have the ability to feel egocentric, right? What's in it for me? How's this going to affect me? But then other things come in, like your values, your empathy for other people. Those things come in and you sort of rationally consider all of it. So it's not that we get rid of all these things. It's that we have other coping mechanisms and other values that sort of grow on top of that, like the Russian nesting doll with the doll gets bigger and bigger as we mature. If you're emotionally mature enough, you can self-reflect. Affective realism, yes, of course, we all do that. But then if you're adequately mature, at some point you might think, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not the way it feels to me. Maybe I better check this out. And then what would a love story be if there wasn't fear of emotional intimacy, right? (laughs) So all these things will be very familiar, but the difference is that the emotionally immature person is stuck in these. They don't go to other levels when they're engaging with people. Got it. So in some ways, an emotionally mature person will recognize themselves in these list of qualities. An emotionally immature person will be stuck in them, you know, if not in perpetuity, most of the time and won't have many other arrows in the quiver. 
That's a really good metaphor. Yes, they have many fewer arrows in the quiver. And also, Dan, anybody who says, I wonder if I'm emotionally mature, I would almost bet that they're not. Because in asking that question, you're showing self-reflection. You have run these things through, you've assessed it, you've compared it to yourself, and you come up with that little worry. But that is something that the emotionally immature person doesn't. In fact, (laughs) one of the things that always catches my attention is when I tell people the title of my book and they say, oh, well, at least I know I'm not that. (laughs) I'm like, oh, gosh, I wonder. (laughs) (laughs) So so do you think, I mean, you probably don't have data on this, but do you think most people are emotionally mature or immature? What a great question. You know, of course, from my point of view in clinical psychology, and I must add, reading the paper every day, it looks like there's an awful lot of emotional immaturity out there. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask about the statistics on this. I would love at some point for someone to do a study to assess this. But I would say that emotional immaturity seems to be quite prevalent. When children are raised by emotionally immature people, how do they tend to cope with that? Well, the child blames themselves. That's how they cope with it. And that's because children being young are very egocentric and they think everything is about them. So when their parent is egocentric and doesn't pay attention to them, they figure the reason must be that they're not very interesting. Or if the parent is egocentric and self-preoccupied and doesn't have time for the child, the child unfortunately concludes, oh, okay, well, if I try to break into that egocentrism with my problems or my needs, then I see I'm a bother, I'm a pest, I'm a nuisance. They interpret the immature behavior as being something about them, that if they were a better little person, that parent would pay attention to them, would not be so egocentric, would have empathy for them and caring, would be able to get close and make that connection. But when the parent is afraid of emotional intimacy, and emotional intimacy just means that we share honestly what's going on with us at the deepest level. But when the parent can't do that, The child concludes, oh my gosh, you know, the innermost part of me, the most real part of me is not attractive to my parent. It must be something wrong with me. And so, unfortunately, the child blames themselves for all of these characteristics, and it goes very deeply into their self-concept. Because the parent is the original mirror that we gaze into to find out who we are and what our standing is in the world. Coming up, Lindsay C. Gibson explains the two main coping strategies of adult children of emotionally immature parents. She also talks about why adult children of EIPs often turn to what she calls healing fantasies. And she outlines some healthier ways to respond to emotionally immature parents and also emotionally immature people in general. After this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. 
I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In your writing, you talk about two classic coping mechanisms among children of emotionally immature parents. One is internalizing, the other is externalizing. Can you say a little bit more about these two ideas? Yes, they were my attempt to understand the differences that I saw in people from the same parents. Like, how does this happen that this person is in my office trying to improve themselves, talking about the issues, trying to make things better? In other words, being very emotionally mature. And they're describing a sibling or many siblings who really are very emotionally immature, not functioning well at all, very fused with the family, very entangled with the family. And that's always interested me, like how in the world does that happen? So when I was trying to really understand what kind of person comes to psychotherapy or what kind of person comes to a bookstore and looks for self-help, I mean, think about how self-reflective that is. I mean, that's like a major indicator of maturity, of emotional maturity. But I began to see people kind of sorting into two groups. And the internalizer is a person who 
From the very get-go, I mean, they have done research with babies who have started out in life with more perceptiveness and more physical sensitivity than other babies. So this is very, very early. The more perceptive babies looked around, they were curious, they just looked into things, basically, and they were very sensitive. And I think that that initial perceptiveness and sensitivity turns into a kind of awareness of other people and of oneself. There's a lot going on internally in that child because they process it and they think about it and they make connections. So these people are avid learners, by the way. They tend to be learners their whole life because of that love of putting stuff together inside themselves and getting better at something. So that internalization brings in more experience and it also ends up complexifying them. They become a more complex person with deeper, more nuanced feelings. So that internalizer really becomes sort of, you might say, self-modulating, self-guiding, because they have the ability on the inside to perceive reality in a very accurate way, because they are so perceptive. And they also, unfortunately, suffer more under the parenting of emotionally immature people because their feelings get hurt so easily. And they are very, very aware when someone is not paying attention to them or ridiculing them or criticizing them. They have that tendency to take that in, in a way that can cause a lot of anxiety and sometimes even depression. So that's the internalizer. Stuff goes in, it gets processed, and just basically seems to be a deeper kind of person. Now, the externalizer, you can think of them as someone who really kicks experience out of themselves. So an experience comes in and they react and externalize it. It's almost like they spit it back out. They don't take it in, mull it over, try to figure it out, wonder about it. They just do something to dissipate the sensation or the amount of disturbance that it might cause. So externalizers live by the rule that it's somebody else's fault because when you live in an externalizing mindset, it looks like that. It looks like this person did something I don't like. I, of course, reacted in this way. Like, could there be any question that anyone would react any differently? And that caused a big problem. So it was their fault because all I did was react to them. And they have no idea that their reactions are a problem, or I should say that their reactivity is a problem. So the externalizers always think it's somebody else's fault. They always look outside themselves for the solutions, and they tend to not take in information that other people are trying to give them in a relationship that could help them grow and could help the relationship. So instead of 
responding to their spouse's suggestion to get therapy, what happens? Of course, it's the spouse's fault. And externalizers are the people who will say things like, hey, I'm just saying what I think, or hey, this is just me, I can't change. They have no awareness of the impact that they have on other people because they can't take it in in such a way that they could get that information from internal processing. They're stuck with the reactivity. Okay, so we've talked about some of the ways children of emotionally immature parents cope. And we'll broaden at some point to talk about emotionally immature people generally, not just parents. But let's stick with emotionally immature parents now. If you're a grown-up and you've been raised by people who you're pretty sure are emotionally immature and the relationship is still causing you problems, how do you deal with that? One of the ways that people deal with it, unfortunately, is by engaging in what I call a healing fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) And that is that the person believes that one of these days they will find the answer, the magic key that will create a good relationship between them and the emotionally immature person. So the healing fantasy goes something like this, like, I will keep trying to reach them. I will keep trying to understand them. I will keep trying to soothe them till they get to the point where they say, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for all that you've done for me all these years. And now I want to pay you back by talking about what you'd like to talk about. And I'd like to have us get to know each other better. It's something like that. I'm exaggerating. But they hope that one day the parent will have this enlightening awareness of how they've been and will want to correct that. And then there will be a good relationship. So that is what we all do with problems with our parents because we need our parents. We can't afford to be critical or cynical about them when we're growing up. We have to believe the best of them for our own maturational needs. Later on, when we come to realize the limitations that our parents have, or maybe we realize that we don't like certain things about them very much, then this calls for a deeper level of dealing with the situation. And a lot of times people find this out when they have major life events, like getting married, moving into their first new house. Maybe the parent gets ill, or maybe the person has children, and now they're interfacing with their parent as a grandparent, watching how their parent is handling their kids. And there can be this awareness that, you know, I really can't tolerate this in this situation. It comes to a head. And so people have different ways of responding to that. Some people move internally. That would be, of course, the internalizer. And they try to find ways of understanding the parent and dealing with the parent in some other way than just reacting and getting mad at them, that kind of thing. And then other people, they react. They can get caught in a cycle of anger and blame toward their parents as well because, you know, they're not dealing very well with it and they don't know 
how to deal with it because they have proven for themselves that these parents don't take feedback very well, they don't listen very well, and they really don't want to change. So we can talk more about concretely what to do, but overall, in order to deal with the emotionally immature parent, you have to build your own self-awareness and the awareness of your own emotional reactions, as well as understanding the concept of their immaturity. And both of those things position you to give a more realistic and you know, perhaps helpful response to the situation. Can you say more about that? So you write about nurturing your relationship to yourself, and I think that's what you were just referencing just now, and then also understanding how immaturity works. Can you just put a little meat on the bone with both of those concepts? Sure. Yeah, this is such a important topic. The self-discovery that people go through in psychotherapy is enormously important. And psychotherapy, of course, is not the only way that you discover yourself or get to know yourself better. But it's so important because one of the things that emotionally immature parents do is they don't allow you to really get to know yourself or express yourself because they are very concerned with you playing an appropriate role in their life. They want you to be just like them. They don't support major individuality in their children, or lots of times they'll allow one or two children to have their individuality, often through neglect, unfortunately. But then they will kind of enmesh with the rest of the children who don't seem to be able to create their own lives. But those emotionally mature parents do not help their children learn about their feelings, examine their thoughts, learn how to rely on other people for help. They just don't provide that parental guidance and that emotional connection. So their children end up with the wrong ideas about themselves that I talked about earlier. And they also don't know themselves very well because no one has really expressed an interest in their deeper being, their most basic personality. The parent just isn't interested in knowing them at that level of emotional intimacy. So it becomes extremely important later in life for the people who have suffered that to learn how to, well, I started to say to learn how to nurture themselves, but first they have to find themselves. They have to know themselves. I was thinking about in reading your book, Dan, about the role that meditation and mindfulness can give to a person who has not been encouraged to find themselves because it gives people a starting point for realizing that they exist. Now, that seems like a crazy thing to say, but if you're growing up with egocentric people who don't have good empathy for others and don't really put much energy into emotionally connecting with you, sometimes children can feel not only emotionally lonely, but kind of like, do I even matter? Do I even exist? And so experiences like mindfulness or meditation are a wonderful existential experiencing of the fact that I'm here. 
that this is me. And so nurturing is very important, but also beginning to build an experiencing of the self that leads to a more articulated self-concept that gives the person a feeling of inner strength. And then when we're working with people in therapy who have these kinds of parents, or it could be a spouse, could be a boss, could be a coworker, the concept of emotional immaturity is often such a relief to them because, as I said before, what we all do as children is we blame ourselves. We do not blame our parents. Remember, the child's egocentricity means that all roads lead back to them, so they figure that it must have been something they did. And they don't have the concept, the ideas to understand emotional immaturity and how it affects people. So when they're given that information, it's like a light goes on because the theory of emotional immaturity explains the behavior and predicts the behavior so reliably that people are just amazed at what it has opened up for them in terms of understanding what's going on. So instead of them feeling crazy or selfish or bad about themselves, they instead can label these behaviors and understand that this is coming from the parent or the coworker or whoever, and it's something about them. It's not something that they have to internalize and wonder how they cause this behavior. Now they have a roadmap to what makes people behave this way. So they're experiencing in their personal life the same kind of excitement that I experienced, you know, in my early training when I was learning about how people develop and what emotional immaturity and maturity look like. That excitement of the idea and what it explains is incredibly healing. And then if at the same time you are interested in getting to know yourself and nurturing yourself, That's a very powerful combination for growth. That makes a lot of sense. And it's probably good for anybody, whether you've been raised by emotionally immature people or not, or whether you have an emotionally immature coworker or boss or not. So yes to all of that. And I can absolutely see how both working on yourself and understanding yourself and understanding how emotional maturity works, all of a sudden how that would make your world make sense and how exciting that would be too. And I am also curious, once you've got this understanding, both of yourself and of the, you know, mechanism of the minds of the people with whom you're interacting and perhaps of the people who raised you, how do you then handle yourself in the face of people whose behavior may be extremely annoying or provocative? Yeah, it's not easy, is it? Extremely annoying, provocative, emotionally immature people are difficult for everybody to handle. And that's what I emphasize with people that I work with, that it's very hard to know what to do because these people, by definition, are not playing by the rules. So if you expect them to listen to you, take your point of view, for the purpose of the conversation at least, 
self-reflect, have a connection with you. They're already miles ahead of you in their defensive reactions. And so it's very hard for you to play catch up when you don't understand what you're dealing with. Because an emotionally immature person will say and do things that pull you right off your train of thought that are so unrelated or outrageous that it stops your mind from working. A friend of mine called it brain scramble. That is, you're following along, you think, and then it's like all of a sudden, you don't have no idea where this is coming from, what they're talking about, how this relates to what you brought up in the first place, and they're all over the map. And when you try to follow that and make sense of it, you are out of the game because the whole point is for you to give up. So these are very difficult people to interact with and to sort of have any kind of effectiveness with. Maybe I could just give some ideas for how to deal with them in general, and then we can go on from there. So I call this the maturity awareness approach, and it's in my first book, uh, The Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. The first thing is that you detach and observe what they're doing. This is where your conceptual understanding of emotional immaturity comes in really handy because you are not under the gun to respond right away. You do have the right to step back and observe what's happening and look at them and their effects on you. You can think about their thoughts, you can think about your thoughts, and you can name it so that you have some consciousness of what is going on in the moment. So you first become very present. And of course, you know, any practice like mindfulness or meditation will help you do that because you become familiar with that process of centering yourself and staying aware of your reality and of your existence, so to speak. And then you can express what you need to express to them and let go. In other words, when you express something to an emotionally immature person, you are not trying to get them to change. It's for your benefit to express. It's not to change them or transform them with an emotionally immature person, or I call them EIPs. You want to go in focused on the outcome that you want. Like, where are you going to go with the interaction? What is your intention? You have a goal in mind. You're not trying to improve the relationship. You're just trying to have a successful interaction. Because if you try to improve the relationship, now you've gone into emotionally intimate territory. And that is what they can't do. And it will make them even more defensive. So you're just trying to have a successful interaction. And then your job is to maintain enough management sense that you realize it's going to be up to you to have the um, interaction go the way that you want it to. In other words, you don't expect them to be emotionally open or emotionally reciprocal because then you'll just feel frustrated and invalidated. You want to set yourself the goal of communicating clearly. 
but without expecting a satisfying emotional exchange, because you probably won't get it. And then you can set boundaries and not go along with whatever they have in mind for you. So you manage the interaction in a way that allows you to stay yourself and not fall under uh, the spell of their emotionally immature relationship system. So people have to find a way of maintaining an optimal distance from emotionally immature people. You may want to preserve the family bond by visiting, but maybe it won't work so well if you're trying for a deeper relationship. There's no harm in trying. I never say to people, don't talk to them, don't try, give up, it's no use. Never, because I don't know that that's true. And sometimes people have had some rather good experiences doing that. Most of the time, no, but that's not for me to say. So you can have them keep an optimal distance by setting boundaries, limiting contact, and thereby kind of stopping the drain that happens when emotionally immature people sort of suck up your energy and give very little back except frustration. So in terms of some ideas for how you manage EIPs, first of all, you want to step out of the rescuer role. EIPs do this thing where they're always presenting themselves as the victim of something. And you are supposed to feel for them and jump in there. And I always tell people, you know, it's not good to over-identify with the problems they're telling you about, which of course internalizers are wont to do because they have such good empathy, but it doesn't help with emotionally immature people because it doesn't get through to them very well. They don't have a good receptive capacity for things like empathy and love. It's never enough. It's kind of water off a duck's back. You can also be slippery and sidestep. You can say things like, I don't know. I can't really answer that right now. You know, hmm. <laughs> you can sidestep issues with them. And you can agree with their feelings, but not their demands. So you might say, you know, I guess you're pretty upset with me, or I know you think this is a mistake. So you're empathizing with them, but you're not saying, oh, what can I do to make you not upset? Or what can I do to not make this mistake? You're just empathizing that they don't see it the way you do. So when people do the slippery sidestep thing, sometimes people say, well, isn't that avoidance? And really, it is technically avoidance, but it's not passive. It's both tactical and strategic because when someone is not sincere in their interest in connecting with you and they're trying to really make things less clear instead of clearer, then being slippery and sidestepping their efforts to control you is a good thing and it's a gentle way of doing it. You can also lead the interaction, change the subject, introduce different topics, deepen the conversation with questions, and you can create space for yourself. You can leave the room. You can limit the length of your exposure. And finally, you can set limits by stopping them. You don't invite them. You can even cut off contact and move into estrangement if, if it was really, really bad. 
So these are all some of the ways that people can react differently to their emotionally immature people. And I just want people to remember, though, that you can do this in a couple of styles. One style might be to be what I would call, you know, kind of the the prize fighter, that you go in ready to confront, ready to fight it out, (laughs) ready to have the argument. That's fine. That's a way of moving forward with whatever agenda you have that you want to accomplish. That's perfectly fine. It's in some ways kind of like the American way. We want to see the action, you know. But other times people can handle things in more of a Tai Chi master approach or a jujitsu approach where you are, again, sidestepping, being slippery, but showing a graceful, necessary avoidance of some of the ways that they try to pull you into conflict or going along with their imposing their will on you. And I tell people, you know, whichever way you go about it, if you end up feeling like you are being true to yourself and being honest with them, mission accomplished. That is a huge success right there. Doesn't matter what it looks like and it doesn't matter what your style is. It sounds like this could be easy to screw up in that you've just armed us with a bunch of tactics and strategies, but emotionally immature people are experts at provoking dysregulation. So it's pretty easy to lose it and forget the strategies and tactics because you've been hijacked by your own amygdala. Absolutely. And emotionally immature people, by the way, are instinctive. They're instinctive fighters. They have a lot of natural defensiveness. But what they can't hide or what they can't obfuscate is they can't hide the confusion and the way that what they're doing and saying just doesn't make sense. If you can see through that and remain in a somewhat detached place and you can be prepared for this, that makes all the difference in the world. Like I said, it's never easy, but the difference between standing back and observing or being mindful of what's going on engaging your prefrontal cortex in labeling and naming the behaviors as you see them, that is your power. Because emotionally immature people will pull you right off of your own self-awareness. You will become a set of reactions like they are. And that's why staying in touch with yourself when you're interacting with them is so critical Because it's the one thing that emotionally immature people try to do is to pull you off of yourself so that you will fuse with them or enmesh with them and be sort of like a reflection of them or mirror them. They like that kind of mirroring relationship as opposed to two separate people. Sounds like you can grind down the emotionally immature person by being mature. Yeah, good point. That persistence is everything with this and repetition is everything with this. So sometimes my clients and I will talk about an approach if they're going home for a visit or maybe going home that night to dinner with their husband. And what I tell them is you have to know where you want to go. That's the being prepared part. That's the setting a goal part. You have to know where you want to go 
And then you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And you're persistent about it. What wears down is that emotionally immature people are not prepared for repetition. What they're used to is they propose something or insist upon something and other people react and then they may protest and then they do what they want, meaning they do what the emotionally mature person wants. So that's what they're expecting. When a person stays calm and they repeat persistently their position and what they want, they may show a little empathy to soften it, but you know, basically they're saying this is what's going to happen. They have no recourse for that. It's like what parents do with three and four-year-olds. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Well, actually, it's what parents do with children you know, their whole lives because you keep repeating it and repeating it. You know, and then at age 25 or 30, the child comes back and says, you know what I realized? And then they tell you exactly what you've been telling them for 20 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do that to my wife a lot. I realize things she's been telling me for 13 years. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're all constantly waking up. <laughs> Seems to be the name of the game. But anyway, that's what really works in terms of sort of wearing them down or getting what you need ultimately is that process of just continue repeating it. But so many people give up. They say, oh, they didn't listen or they won't do it or because they have been trained to be passive by emotionally immature people. EIPs are very dominant. They can be scary. They can control you by withholding love. They have a whole bunch of ways of making you afraid of them. They will behave in ways that make other people move into a more passive or confused state where they just end up going along with them. So when you are persistent and stay in touch with what it is that you want to see happen, they're really at a loss for that because being immature, they don't have great staying power. They make a big fuss and they try to control things and be the dominant one. But when it comes to like methodically and and carefully keeping on a certain path, that's very hard for them actually. So you can actually get a lot done through that repetition and persistence approach. After the break, Lindsay talks about why it is so hard to let go of our healing fantasies, what role compassion should and should not play in your relationships with EIPs, and what healing can actually and realistically look like. Keep it here. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health.
It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. It seems like a key move here is dropping what you call the fantasy of relationship repair. I wonder, though, when you're talking about parents or spouses or anybody who's emotionally immature, but when you're talking about parents in particular, that seems like a tough fantasy to drop. And then once you've dropped it, where do you get those primordial emotional needs met? Well, you get them met through yourself. You get them met through finding other people who are more emotionally mature than the EIP that you're involved with. But they can't replace your parents, you know? That's true. That's true. That's a really sad and poignant thing because we have a deep bond with our parents. You know, John Bowlby, one of the original attachment researchers, said that the basis of bonding was familiarity and proximity. Okay. Doesn't say anything about emotional connection. Doesn't say anything about listening to each other, empathy, nothing. Proximity and familiarity. So yes, we we have very deep bonds with our parents. Of course, we want it to go well with them. Of course, we want a better relationship with them. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's one of the things in therapy that we have to appreciate the poignancy of the healing fantasy. Because yeah, like you say, Dan, who doesn't want that? But the fact is that if you go at an emotionally immature person wanting a more emotionally engaged relationship, wanting a deeper relationship in which they empathize with you, you actually are going to scare them in a way that's going to get you less of what you want. It's a delicate balance. It's like you want to give up the uh, more unrealistic parts of your healing fantasy. That is that one day they'll say, oh, I can't believe how insensitive I've been to you. You know, let's, let's go out and have a deep talk. If you become more realistic about what you might be able to get from them and detach a little bit so you don't have pressure behind it, you might be able to have a little more of the closeness that you would like, but it doesn't work when that's what you are expecting and that's what you're trying to get in a big way. So I always recommend to people to not over-expect what they can get, but to find other ways of having 
pleasant interactions with their parents in which they can spend time with the parent, but to stay aware of your own limits and your own endurance because these people can be exhausting. And so maybe it works for you to have an optimal distance from them. Maybe you don't live next door to them, or maybe you do, but you have boundaries. You limit the amount of time that you spend with them so that the relationship can be as good as it possibly can be. I'm not looking for people to give up on their relationship with their parents. I understand and I appreciate that bond. You know, as one person said to me, he's my dad. <laughs> it's like, I know. <laughs> so we're not, we're not trying to get rid of that feeling. We're just trying to be realistic about what kind of relationship we can have with them as an adult. Last question from me, and this is a bit of a tricky one, but I, I'm going to ask about the role of compassion. And I want to be clear when I say compassion for emotionally immature people, I'm not saying you condone their behavior or encourage their behavior. What I mean is that you might be able to understand how they got this way, probably through pain, which might relieve you of some of the blinding anger. Does what I'm saying make sense to you? And if so, how would one operationalize it? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because that in some ways I think is the question has so many different levels to it. And it also involves issues of forgiveness as well. But for compassion, I think that there is a time in therapy or in your own self-work where compassion, actually, it will evolve. Your compassion will evolve as you understand more about what emotional immaturity is, because it's not a great way to live. They are living in a state of rigid defensiveness. They can't get close to people. The world uh, often appears very threatening to them. Their feelings color things. They distort, dismiss, and deny reality. So you can imagine how well that goes. <laughs> They're not living a fulfilling life. So as you understand more about what makes them tick, and you understand more, especially in your own self-research or in therapy, where they came from, like how, how did their parents treat them? What kind of experiences did they go through in childhood? What kind of traumas did they have? Uh, did their family move between countries when they were four years old? I mean, there are all kinds of things that can happen. But that compassion is not the first thing I go for when I'm doing psychotherapy for someone. And I don't think it should be the first thing that people go for when they read my books because compassion is a little too close to what the emotionally immature person has been using all along to gain the advantage in the relationship, which is, it's all about me. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you how hard it was for me. Let me tell you what a rough life I've had. And because the kids of these people often get that kind of message, like feel for me, have, have sympathy for my plight. They've already gotten a lot of that from those parents. So I really allow it to evolve. Sooner or later, especially, you know, when we're talking about understanding some of the behaviors in terms of their parents' history, they may begin to feel some compassion. And 
That's great because it's just part of the complex understanding of what they've been through with that parent. But to, I guess, go for that right away or to see that as sort of a solution to the relationship, I think that has to naturally evolve. I think as we mature, if we're self-aware, we tend to become more compassionate because like we were saying earlier, it's like we remember all the stuff that we did and we remember, you know, our failings and we start to put that in context and then that makes us feel more merciful toward other people. So I think it's a good thing, but I think it has to come to you at the right time for it to be helpful instead of making you either feel a little guilty or feel like you should suppress your anger or suppress your disappointment because now you understand what they've been through. No, I think it's very important to be true to your own experience, to have empathy for yourself and compassion for yourself. So many of these people that are adult children of these kinds of parents have not learned how to have compassion for themselves, first of all, because the parent doesn't do that. So I never push that. In fact, uh, the time or two that I tried it early in my career, my my clients set me straight right quick. (laughs) They were furious that I had, you know, sort of well, let's understand, you know, it's like, no, I'm not ready for that. And lots of times they aren't ready for forgiveness either. So forgiveness is great, again, if you get there as a natural part of your development, but you can't make somebody forgive someone. It's an evolution. And so I think we have to be mindful of that when we talk about things like compassion and forgiveness, that they are relieving experiences when we have them at the right time, when we've developed into them. But it actually pushes us backwards when people try to move us into that state of mind prematurely. It it will come if it's going to come as you develop your own self-awareness. Point well taken, and and it makes a lot of sense. I know I said that was my last question, but I'm going to ask my two closing questions that I always ask. One is, is there something I should have asked but didn't? Yeah, I think I would say, what do people have to do to get over this experience with emotionally mature people? And I would say, you don't have to claw back what was lost from that person. You don't have to go back and make them give it to you again. Because you have everything you need inside yourself, and you always have but you have been detached from it or unhooked from it by the eclipsing needs of the emotionally immature person. So you can get your needs met with other people and through your own self-work. You don't have to go and have a remedial experience with the parent or with the emotionally immature person. That's one of the beautiful things about psychological development on your own is that it's not like that childhood was your only chance to get that experience. You can create it for yourself. And the other thing I I would mention is that you don't have to master the EIP. In other words, you don't have to take control of them or be dominant over them. You just need to be conscious and observing You don't need to confront them if you don't want to. Sometimes that can be way too hard. 
But if you can feel when somebody is imposing their will on you and you can label behaviors that make you feel small or make you feel bad about yourself, you can master your own reactivity. That's really the point. It's not to master them. It's not to get them to change. It is to work with your true responses in such a way that they begin to shift and you start to have uh, more confidence and more self-awareness as you go about your life. Oh, one other thing, (laughs) and that is that you want people to trust their awareness of what hurts and what makes them feel bad when they're around EIPs to get back in touch with those self-protective instincts, that emotional self-protection, that sensation of safety and unsafety is hugely important to being able to find the people that you will be able to have that kind of reciprocal relationship with. Chock full of insight and practical information. I really appreciate it. The final question is, can you please plug your books and any other resources you've put out into the universe? Gladly. So at this point, I have four books. The first book is Who You Are Meant to Be. That came out a long time ago in 2000. The book that we've been mostly concentrating on today is Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. That's been an Amazon bestseller in its categories for a long time. It's fortunately sold very well. It's uh, translated into 28 different languages. And then the next book is called Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents. This is actually turned into a series. And the third book is called Self-Care for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And that's the first two books really talk about the syndrome and what you can do about it. And then the third book is self-care in the sense of its little short insights into yourself and EIPs in a way that you can read, you know, at the beach, by the pool, before you go to bed. It's it's just easy reading. And then my next book, which is called Disentangling from EIPs, is going to be out in July of 2023. So anybody who wants more information uh, about the books or what I do can look up my website, which is Dr. Lindsay with an A, Gibson.com, drlindsaygibson.com. Lindsay, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thanks again to Lindsay C. Gibson. Thanks as well to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode with the great meditation teacher, Don Mauricio, who's going to tell us how to operationalize the oft-repeated cliche about getting out of your head. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.